Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. It takes a few good men to make real change. Earlier this week at the DeWitt Center, 39 men were celebrated for their impact on the Roxbury community. When they see your name on the wall up there, and they say, oh, that's my dad, or that's my grandpa, or whatever, 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 your name will always be there, and this is my gift to all of you. And it's a gift well-deserved. On Monday, 39 men from Roxbury were honored for their selfless contributions to their neighborhood. Beloved host Stephanie Thomas organized the Outstanding Men of Roxbury Luncheon to bring to light these men who worked tirelessly behind the scenes, from mentoring youth, supplying clothing to families in need, to providing meals and toys during the holidays, their devotion is unmatched. The afternoon flew by as recipients enjoyed good food and each other's company. But nothing sweeter than the impact they've made in Roxbury. What's important today is to be able to reach down or reach up and help a young man or young woman um, navigate through life. Uh, it's important for me because I had great mentors, with, started with my grandfather, for my uncles, uh, for men in the community that had lifted me up when I needed it. Everybody needs inspiration. Everybody needs that person to believe in them. So that's why it's important for me. I'm a member of the community, and I know what it's like. You were growing up, and people, like you said, would walk past you. I think we have to be the light and love in every room. So if you see a stranger, it's only a stranger until you introduce yourself. So I like to give them a welcome, say hello, how are they doing? And then that way we start a new transition of how we introduce ourselves and like just take back our community and just know each other, love each other, and just really support one another. The city of Boston is making some changes in our infrastructure, and Mayor Wu is committed to seeing Boston go green. Another important thing that people um, maybe don't think about with trees is that tree roots need air. Last Friday, Mayor Wu joined environmental leaders for a tour of new green infrastructure in East Boston. They viewed water pores, sidewalks and streetways, new street drains, as well as newly installed trees whose canopies will provide shade and soothing. Did you know the water porous roads mimic the natural process of rainwater draining into the ground? That's compared to gray infrastructure, which disposes untreated rainwater into nearby water bodies. Wu's press conference listed five design alternatives and green infrastructure projects that the city will implement. So green infrastructure is a lot of things. Um, trees are a big part of it. Uh, it really is, you know, trees bring shade. They absorb stormwater. They uh, really help our, uh, you know, communities and our public spaces feel alive and human. But there's there's more to it than that. Um, anything that can absorb stormwater infrastructure, absorb stormwater and help uh, prevent pollutants from getting in our waterways, uh, these are the kinds of features that we're trying to build more of into the city uh, to make sure that our streets uh, are really contributing to the quality of our environment. Uh, and not just being places to get from ways to get from A to B. It's going to allow us uh, the ability to better maintain stormwater on our streets and sidewalks, and it will allow us to uh, help to fight the impacts of climate change by creating uh, enhanced tree canopy and lowering urban temperatures and by cleaning air quality. 
um, and uh, you know just generally creating spaces that stormwater can go to rather than uh, standing in the streets uh, and on sidewalks. And the Green New Deal is becoming something that we're going to see every day throughout all of our parks and infrastructure. We're going to see how it's becoming porous um, in terms of concrete laying, but also how that nourishes a lot of the green infrastructure to new trees. So to me, this is incredibly important because it's setting a model that can be replicated everywhere. Young women of color have made themselves known in the rowing community, thanks to the podcast Rowing in Color. Here's BNN reporter Aisha Kulibali with a story. Rowing in Color is a podcast that creates community for people of color in rowing. And at this year's Head of the Charles Regatta, co-founder Denise Aquino says it was easy to create the all-black women's eight-person team. They come from very competitive programs, and the biggest question we've had is, where did you find them? They've been here. <laughs> They've been here. You've just not been looking. Aquino says the mixed BIPOC eight is not the first to roll the Charles. And they are not looking to be the last because they are working to add diversity to rowing. I did what uh, I felt like my ancestors taught me to do, which is if uh, my seat at the table is not respected, I'll just create my own table. The women's all-black eight-person team rolled on Saturday, October 22nd and came in eight out of 14 in club and 31 out of 40 boats in total. Candace Burton was a part of the crew and competed in what she believes is the biggest race in rowing. Yeah, it's it's really emotional for me because I've, I've never had the experience of being in a boat of all black women. We're, we're kind of used to, you know, being like one or maybe a few of us in, in the boat. Boston University rowing coach Malcolm Doldrin shared his knowledge on how to steer the boat for the head of the Charles to both coxswain of rowing in color. He said people seeing both teams rolling the Charles will have a big impact on the sport. And it doesn't take uh, a whole lot, just representation, just uh, uh, knowing that, hey, I could be there and I can do that. I think that that's something that uh, can have a long-standing impact in the sport. Rowing in Color said they use the relationships they've developed over the years to make this happen, including Boston University, who supplied the boat for the mix by Park 8. This is Aisha Kulibali reporting from Charles River for BNN. In Jamaica Plain, tension is rising as Forbes building residents wonder if they'll still have a place to live at the end of the year. Sign the contract now to save our home. Residents of the Forbes building in Jamaica Plain came together to save their homes and demand affordable housing. The majority of Forbes occupants are seniors, disabled or low income several of whom have lived in the building for more than a decade. The issue lies with the owner, who has yet to sign a contract with the state that would subsidize the building and keep rents affordable for 20 years. If an agreement cannot be made, prices could skyrocket, forcing many of the tenants out. If you were a dog and you were stuck out in a yard somewhere, the MSPCA makes sure that you're saved. Well, we need to be... Humans need to be saved also. It's your human right. You live in that apartment, you cook your meals, you sleep there, you have happy days and bad days, but it's your apartment, and you need to keep it. And we all need to fight to make sure that you will wake up each and every morning in your apartment. If he doesn't let us sign a reasonable rent, I'll be devastated. I don't know where I'll be able to live. I can't 
I can only afford a certain amount on what I get on Social Security and I got a small pension. And I'm sure there's other people in the building that are in the same situation. So it's, it's, it's very imperative that Paul Clayton comes to his senses and signs an agreement to keep this building affordable. And so we as a city and as the state have to make a decision. What happens when we have bad actors in our neighborhoods? What are the consequences for displacing the people that we represent here in the city of Boston? And right now, it looks like anybody can make a decision to go from affordable housing to full market rate for profit, regardless of what happens to the people in our neighborhoods. And I'm not going to stand for it. None of my uh, colleagues are going to stand for it. And we're passing this home rule petition. We're going to move it through the state house so that we can make sure that not only the people of the Forbes building, but everybody who lives in an expiring use building feels protected where they live. Back in Roxbury, it was the best of both worlds, as college students and seniors connected over bingo, thanks to nonprofit organization Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly. Tuesday Night Bingo is an event not to be missed, especially when you have friends like these. The Smith House Apartments in Roxbury is one of 17 city sites where older adults engage with college students over fun activities as part of Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly's programming. Since 1979, the nonprofit volunteer organization has worked to enrich the lives of older adults in Boston who are without family or lack social contacts. On a weekly basis, the generations come together to socialize, play games, and share their stories. It's a time to find joy and connect, but most importantly, be appreciated. I'm really appreciative of the uh, younger adults coming to spend time with us because oftentimes uh, we get forgotten and oftentimes um, there are just a lot of activities that we wouldn't be a part of anymore. But thanks to you younger adults, we get to be part of activities weekly and we get to participate and really feel connected to our community. It's wonderful that these young adults are spending time with us. It's a pleasure interacting with them and sharing stories. It makes us feel that we are appreciated in the community, and the young people energize us and make us feel that we have not been forgotten. We need to feel that. The lovely thing about these programs is that with the intergenerational aspect of it, um, things that I would have never thought of and things that they would have never thought of, we get to share between each other. You know, we get to share stories, wisdom, philosophies, thoughts. There's just a lot that we can learn from each other just from being in each other's presence for just an hour a week. And it's really amazing what we can learn from each other. It's really joining generations together to celebrate life and so that both older and younger adults can learn from each other, can share with one another, and can give and receive, give to and receive from one another because this is how we interact as humans, and it's a necessary, essential part of life, connectedness. Nikki Schultz has been executive director of Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly since 2015. In our conversation, she discusses her passion for LBFE and the importance of intergenerational engagement. Enjoy the interview. Uh, so Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly, um, we more locally go by LBFE. 
Uh, we, our mission is to relieve isolation and loneliness among older adults. We've been here in Boston for 43 years, but the organization runs a little bit deeper than that. We actually started in Paris in 1946, and it was our founder, Armand Marquise, his response after World War II. Um, a lot of young people died in the war, and there weren't people taking care of older adults. So he puts his, he and his friends, they put their wealth into this ideal and they move into the areas of Paris where older adults were living. They celebrate the holidays together and meals and they become friends and family and they start to refer themselves as the little brothers of the elderly, mm. which is where the name comes from. Uh, I like to tell that story because on the surface level, it's a little bit of a confusing name, um, but it's a, an honor to our founder. And from there, the mission grew and it went across Europe and in uh, 59, we it came to the U.S. and the Chicago chapter was the first chapter. And there are five chapters across the U.S. Uh, currently. We're in Canada and Mexico and several countries throughout Europe. And uh, each, each chapter is completely independent. So what we do in Boston is different than what happens in Chicago is different than what happens in Paris. Uh, but the, the mission is the same, and we're you know, part of this bigger, bigger movement to end isolation and loneliness. That's beautiful. I love how um, this, this, uh, this man was able to create this community, and it extended like, internationally at this point. Um, and as executive director, I'd love to know, how did you first get involved with LBFE, and what do you find most rewarding about your work there? Oh, I'd love to talk about this. Um, my, ever since I was a teenager, I knew that I wanted to work with older adults. You know, some people are kid people, and they always know that they want to be a teacher or work with kids. Uh, for me, it was always older adults. When I was a kid, um, I, I didn't even really get along with kids when I was their age, uh, but I, I loved being with my grandmother and my great aunt and great uncle uh, playing cards together. My my meme, she lived kind of in the middle of the, the family. My un two uncles were on the other side of her. Mom was across the street. My sister now lives next door. So meme was at like the center of our family. And I can tell you the, the moment I decided that I wanted to spend my life with older adults was we were playing cards and she stopped shuffling and she looks at me and she goes, you're my favorite pal. And that was it. That was the moment. I, was like, I just want to do this forever. Uh, so I, when I went to school, I studied gerontology um, and I have an MBA in healthcare management and um, I, I was in, started my career in case management, um, wasn't, wasn't a great fit for me. Uh, from there, I uh, took a sidestep and I joined the Peace Corps for a while. Mm -hmm. But when I came home and I wanted to go back to my first love of older adults and I found uh, LBFE, I started as the volunteer coordinator. So it brought together my love of volunteerism and service along with uh, with older adults. So it was really, really a perfect fit. And I'm so honored to you know, nearly 10 years later to be leading this organization and being a part of this big mission. Um, and for the, the second part, I think what, what I love about this work is the, the communities that we build and, you know, bringing older and younger people together. Because for me personally, that was a huge part of, you know, my upbringing and how I, how I got to where I am today. And I think there's so much for each generation to offer each other. And there's just not enough opportunity for, for folks to meet. That's great. And then I love how you, you really grew with the organization. Uh, so with LBFE, um, what programs do you offer? And uh, who are the seniors that you provide uh, these programs for? 
We have three major programs. We have our City Sites program, which is social. So that's in affordable and public housing. And then we work with students from service learning programs, primarily from Northeastern and Boston College. Uh, and on a weekly basis, the younger and older participants get together in the community rooms of the senior housing building and uh, just spend time together. And it's a platform to build friendships, both intergenerational friendships and with neighbors. And the activities are really determined by the, the folks in the program. So we have some, some programs that are arts and crafts based. We have um, the North End. There's some folks that like to play chess. So there's some chess playing in the North End. Mm. Um, I visited some programs this summer and played a lot of cribbage, which was the game I played with my grandmother. So that was really special for me. Um, others, there's conversation circles and language exchange. We work with a lot of uh, language learners and um, uh, international students, as well as uh, older adults whose first English, first language is not English. Hmm. Um, so a little bit of everything with our City Sites program. Our second program is Digital Dividends, and that was really born from the pandemic uh, when we all saw that you know the digital divide, especially among older adults, is you know, such a pressing issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our Digital Dividends program is in public senior housing, and we have groups classes of 10 to 15 older adults, and they're given a Chromebook that they're able to keep. And we get the, the Chromebooks that have the, um, the touchpad capability. So uh, a lot of our participants are Chinese American, and so they can write the Chinese characters because uh, the, yeah. the keyboard we found doesn't really work that great. Um, and so they, they get to keep the Chromebook. We provide hotspot with, um, with, unlimited data plans for the duration of the program and students come in again on a weekly basis and they do some classroom teaching, some one-on-one work and really just answering any questions that folks might have on how to use their, their devices, what they can do with the internet, how they can connect with other people through it. Uh, And that's been, that's been really popular that launched last October and uh, we're going into our second year and we're expanding a bit. And then our third program is Creative Connections, uh, which is the same model. It's uh, in public senior housing buildings. And we have local artists come in and do six to eight week uh, arts classes. So we just wrapped up a a painting class uh, in September. And in the fall, we have some dance and movement and I think also a drum circle class that'll be starting. So a lot of, a lot of exciting things. We're really trying to mirror the social and educational and artistic opportunities that folks might find in market rate senior housing. That's great. And um, as you mentioned, the college students, they play a large role in the organization, um, especially building that intergenerational component. Can you talk a little bit more about how these uh, college students are being impacted by the work that they're doing at LBFE. Yeah, our, so I mentioned most of our students come from Northeastern and Boston College. We work with a few other schools on a, a smaller, uh, smaller level. Uh, but really the, the benefits that the, the younger folks in our programs have are the same as for the older folks. In 2019, Cigna did a loneliness study and found that Gen Z is actually self-reported the loneliest generation. So we're bringing together two two generations that really have this profound need for human connection, face-to-face human connection, and to to find and build communities. Um, So what we're seeing for both the younger and the older people is decreased isolation and loneliness, 
um, increased self-esteem and feeling of worth, a greater understanding of issues facing the other generation, so more um, more compassion and understanding uh, of you know another age group, increased trust across the ages, and an increased sense of community. So for individuals who want to support the work happening at LBFE, how can they do so? Thank you for asking. Uh, uh, we also have some committees, so if people are interested in volunteering on our committees, which is indirect service, you can reach out to me. My email's on our website, and again, that's lbfeboston.org. All right, wonderful. Nikki Schultz, Executive Director of LBFE, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Great being here. Our next guest, Dr. James Interligator, is the Professor of Human Factors Engineering and Design at Tufts University. In collaboration with the organization Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, also known as CREW, Dr. Interligator published the report Extreme Weather and Social Connectedness in September. He covers his findings in our discussion. Here's the interview. Um, I would love for you to share um, the objective of the report and what you found most surprising in your research. Uh, sure, yeah, I'd be glad to share it. Uh, actually, it's a project that came out of some initial conversations with Reverend Walker uh, a lot years ago. Uh, and he had mentioned how that one of, if you look back at traditional climate related disasters, heat waves and things like that, it tends to be people who are socially not connected who are most at risk. So if you look at historical droughts and things, it tends to be the little old man, little old lady living on their own in an apartment. No one thought about checking on them. So sadly, they perished. Uh, and, and this mechanism of social connectedness is pretty clearly important historically, and it's something that uh, we think going forward is going to become more and more important. So we decided to take a look and see what the level of social connectedness was within a few communities within Boston, uh, sort of Roxbury and Chinatown were our main targets. And people had already looked at sort of the, the numerical sense of connectedness. So how many people live there, where okay. are they from, what kinds of schools do they go to, all that stuff. But we wanted to get more sort of up close and personal and understand the, the emotional experience of connectedness. And I guess one thing that was both surprising and not surprising was that uh, it, it, huge variability, there was huge variability in the amount of connectedness. Uh, hmm. But there was clearly a lack of connectedness. Uh, another surprising thing actually was to see that there was much more sort of connectedness that had developed as a result of COVID. You know, when oh. everyone was locked up, they sort of had to get to know some of their neighbors or they had to sort of find ways to help their neighbors get food for the older people, et cetera. So it was really lovely to see that there was this kind of organic connectedness that did develop in, this, in the face of COVID. Uh, but it's, that's the exact kind of connectedness that we're trying to both measure and improve upon as climate change is starting to cause more and more disruptions and disasters. Hmm. Uh, and I was reading in the report uh, some of the ways that you obtained this information. You knocked door to door uh, to community members in Chinatown and Roxbury. You also took a look at social media postings on Twitter. Um, did you see a, a big difference in the the honesty or the type of information that was being shared uh, when you were speaking to people in person and then when you were looking at what they were sharing on social media? Uh, that's an interesting question. So my colleague, um, Justin Hollander, is uh, at Tufts as well. He's a professor in urban studies and planning, and he's the one who sort of led the, the social listening project, the social media project. And 
I think in terms of differences between what we got face-to-face -face and social media, there weren't vast differences. Uh, there were more kind of questions of nuance and uh, size and scale of, of the feelings that people had. Uh, social media turned out to be quite difficult to mine for looking for these exact kind of social connectedness um, variables and phenomenon, kind of going door to door and grabbing people at supermarkets, things like that. That that proved to be a bit easier at explaining to them what we were looking for, what we were getting at, because the concept of social connectedness is kind of vague. It's like you know, if you're if you needed a cup of sugar, would you go to your neighbor? Do you know the names of your neighbors? Things like that, and those are a bit harder to spot in social media posts. Hmm. Uh, and speaking of connectedness, uh, I'd love to talk about collaboration. What was it like for Tufts and crew to work together on this report? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, we've done a few projects in the past with crew. They're a fantastic organization uh, that, that really does uh, has proven to be an incredibly uh, robust, helpful, cooperative, insightful partner. Uh, it, it's it's something actually that Tufts we tend to do a lot of is work with local social organizations, charities, things like that. We have a whole group that focuses on that at Tufts. There's this Tisch College of Civic Life, which is really focused on community engagement. So it's a big part of what Tufts is about. And Reverend Walker and uh, crew in general, they're really into that space as well. And they were able to bring in lots of um, expertise, lots of volunteers and employees, people who work with the charity to, to help uh, make the project happen. Mm. So great partner. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And why is social connectedness so important when it comes to extreme weather damage? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, usually extreme weather and weather disruptions, these kinds of events, they're really, you can't really plan for it, right? You don't know when it's going to happen. There might be a hurricane hitting, there might be a nor'easter hitting in New England, a heat wave, things like that. And the, the, one of the big problems with these events is that you, there's no way to really prepare for them. And when they come and happen, people are sort of left scrambling for some way to move out of the event or to get through it. Right. Uh, and if, if before the event happens, there are already pre-existing lines of connectedness, if people know the emails, know the phone numbers, know the names, at least of their neighbors, then when things happen, it's quite easy for the community to kind of come together. Right. And, and it's that, that kind of I don't know, sinew in a weird way, this kind of knitting together of the community that's going to make it much more resilient against whatever problems may come, whether it's power outages, heat waves, um, need for food, water, any of these kinds of things. Uh, it's a mechanism that, that we feel is going to be a very important one going forward to help build resilience. Hmm. And what are some ways that communities can build a stronger bond in order to combat those challenges that they, they may face? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the interviews that I, I conducted, actually, this one, uh, I was the the person had a very good observation, which is that it used to be uh, before the time where every family, every house had air conditioning, that people would on summer evenings hang out, out in front of the house and get to know their neighbors and chat. Mm. And that has kind of disappeared. We now have our air conditionings and our social media and our computers and our phones. And we sort of have moved away from any kind of public engagement, uh, even just to our neighbors. Uh, and so that, that, that kind of movement of technology has sort of led to this dissolution or melting away of these kind of informal social networks. So 
one of the mechanisms that I've been a big fan of is the idea of just having block parties, for instance. It's something that used to happen more frequently, doesn't happen much anymore. Um, I have a radical proposal, which is I think it would be great if every city had a, a person or a little group that was in charge of helping nurture and foster block parties. And they just oh. are essentially organizing them. They don't really, it's not like the city has to pay for the food or any of that kind of stuff, but maybe the city could buy a couple of industrial size barbecue pits and move them. So, you know, this Friday is this neighborhood, that next Friday is that neighborhood. And yeah, it's just, to me, a very inexpensive mechanism that could really organically foster this kind of social connection growing. Um, and I'd love to see a city that would be willing to do that to, to kind of help. Because again, I think most neighborhoods are willing and interested perhaps in doing a block party, but they don't know where to begin and how to plan it. And uh, if someone like the city were to step in and help make that happen, it could be a fantastic mechanism for building social connectedness. Well, definitely a lot of um, interesting things to think about as we are coming out of this pandemic and uh, we're together again. So definitely finding ways to build this uh, the social bond is so important right now. Uh, so Dr. Intrilligator, thank you so much for your time. Human Factors Professor of Engineering at Tufts University, I truly appreciate you being here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mafedon. I'll see you next Friday.